Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today. Um, let me begin this way. If you have a Bible, please make your way to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 as we continue our series. And I'm just going to read the first verse. This is what the preacher, I believe him to be Solomon, writes. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. The word is hevel, meaningless, useless, absolutely nothing at all. Now, there was nothing more pleasurable to me than when I was eight years old. I'm going to take a little trip down memory lane, and for every Gen Xer, I feel like sometimes we don't get enough, I don't know, conversation. Um, so we, we, we just talk about all the other generations oftentimes around us, but I'm going to talk a little bit about Gen Xers today and what is considered the, one of the greatest decades in American history, the 80s. I'm a child of the 80s, born in 79, but really had my upbringing during those times. And when I was eight years old, on Christmas Day 1987, I received what I thought was the greatest gift of all time, which was my Nintendo. And this gaming system brought me incredible joy. The first game I got was the original Super Mario Brothers. It's right here. You have to blow in it to make it work, but it still does work. And I got this game, and I began at eight years old this process, which I didn't know what it was called at the time, but it's called today intermittent fasting. It's a very popular thing because I stopped eating. I mean, I loved food, but I love this a whole lot more. And so sleeping, eating, even blinking, like what's the use? I have... No need of those things when I have Super Mario Brothers to play. And that was the greatest experience of my life until 1988, Akron, Ohio, Christmas morning. I open up Super Mario Brothers 2. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I didn't have a need for Super Mario Brothers anymore because I had Super Mario Brothers 2. And I became a passionate reader. See, back then there was a magazine, and every guy who's around my age knows this magazine and had it. It was called Nintendo Power, and it taught me how to read because I wanted to know every secret to this video game and how to master it, accomplish it, enjoy it. And that was the greatest experience of my life until 1990. Valentine's Day of all days, I took all of my Christmas money and all of my chore money, and that is the weekend that Super Mario Brothers 3 came out. And this game, with the graphics and the colors and the levels and all the rest of it, I was infatuated, I was in love, this was my first love. See, we didn't have, uh, you know, the opportunity to talk to people while we're playing video games like people do today. We didn't talk about skins and Fortnite. We talked about Super Mario Brothers 3, and we were awesome for it. And so this is what we talked about at school. And that was the greatest experience of my life, and I know I could do this all day, but 
I'll eventually wrap up. Until that Christmas, 1990, I was 11 years old. And when I went down for that morning, my parents had purchased for me a Sega Genesis. And when I opened up my Sega, I lost my mind. I absolutely lost my mind. I am convinced that the dance that I did, if TikTok existed, I would have so many followers. It would have been a worldwide phenomenon on my reaction from what happened when I got that game. The first all-nighter I ever pulled was when I got Street Fighter II for the Sega Genesis, and me and my buddy Matt played this for 10 hours straight. I don't think we stopped. And we played all night long, never slept, and we kept score of who beat each other the most head-to-head in that time period. Now, all of these things, when, when I look back on it, I learned... A little bit maybe late, but I did eventually learn that I could be completely absorbed by all 57 levels or whatever it was of a video game. But once I had beat the levels, my heart started hungering for a new game, and I became bored with the old. I mean, I haven't actually played these things for decades. Not decades. You just get bored with the old. You want to move on to something new. And so what I thought satisfied no longer satisfied. What I thought brought pleasure no longer brought pleasure. And this isn't just the journey of a pubescent boy either. Maybe in 2016, you, if, you know, and I don't mean to get into the wars between Ford and Chevy and and Dodge, but maybe you saw that the new Dodge Rebel came out and you're like, man, that's a sweet truck. I've got to get one. So you got one. And that was a wonderful truck until 2019, they redesigned it, and they came up with the touchpad, and it's awesome, and it's beautiful, and it looks amazing, and they put a bigger engine in it pretty much, and so you go and you get that one saying, you know, I got 50,000 miles on my old one, it doesn't smell like a new car anymore, so it's time for the 2019 model, and then 2021 comes around, and all of a sudden you saw the TRX, the T-Rex, and you're like, well, yeah, I just... Got the other one in in 2019, but now the T-Rex is out, and it's got a 702-horsepower Hellcat Hemi inside that gets like .83 miles per gallon. So, you know, I need to get that. And so, time for a 700-horsepower Hellcat Happy Dance. Maybe it's your clothes. If you're like my son, you're trying to find out how many hoodies it will take for you to be happy. Maybe it's your shoes. Maybe it's your iPhone. Maybe it's your next vacation. Maybe it gets more serious. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your spouse. But here's the question we're all trying to answer. Here's the thing that we're all after, and we've been after it since humanity began. Can I find a pleasure that is not short-lived? Is there a thing in the world that can truly satisfy the heart of a human being? Is there anything this world has that will satisfy the heart of a human being? Pastor Matt Chandler pointed out that all of us subscribe to the flawed philosophy that what will ultimately satisfy us is just more of what we already have. Most of us have begged God, prayed to God for stuff and for things, and and then he's answered those prayers in many ways, and we now have most of that stuff and most of those things. But we beg him for more stuff and things, because now that we have the stuff and things we asked for, we discovered we're still not satisfied. It's insanity. It's 
absolute insanity that our hearts still hunger for more of the same but expect us to experience a different result. We're in a series called Smoke and Mirrors, Deciphering Truth in a World of Truths. And we are seeing how the book of Ecclesiastes exposes the stupidity of life lived, what they say, what Solomon says here, under the sun, or a life lived apart from God. He's playing the role of someone who lives apart from God. And so today we'll see Solomon, the preacher, expose the philosophy of secular hedonism as garbage. So let me just unpack this a little bit as we begin. Let me unpack a little history so we can see how hedonism has made its way in many ways into Christianity. And some of that, you might say, is not a bad thing. Well, it all depends on how you define things. So a few definitions for us. Hedonism says that pleasure, satisfying our desires, is the most important pursuit of humanity. Pleasure, then, is the highest good. Now, psychological hedonism says that we are psychologically hardwired. Our brains are hardwired in such a way that everything we do is motivated by the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. So all our actions are moving based upon whether it's pursuing pleasure or whether it's an avoidance of pain. Ethical hedonism says that we are morally obligated to maximize our pleasure and happiness. It is our role, really, in in humanity to maximize how much pleasure and happiness we can experience. Now, these are all in the same family, of course, and much of it goes back to a Greek philosopher named Epicurus. And Epicurus lived about 300 years before Christ, and his way of thinking was called Epicurean hedonism. Now, fast forward to the Middle Ages, and Christians denounced Epicurean hedonism because it was said to be inconsistent with the way of Jesus, which is a life of obedience to the Father and avoids what the Bible calls sin, acting out certain actions or pursuits of pleasure outside of the will of God. And so what happened is eventually the Renaissance comes around and a man named Erasmus revives hedonism and argued that its emphasis on pleasure fit with God's wish for humans to be happy. And I hear this all the time. People who, in their walk with Christ, people who, in their journey of faith, say, you know what, I'm pursuing this way of living, I'm pursuing this action in front of me, whether it is consistent with the Scripture or whether it is not, I'm pursuing it and I've justified it because God wants me to be happy. It's confusion. So here's the rub. Happiness, of course, is not evil. It's created by a good God, but you can feel happy while doing things that God calls unholy. Pleasure is not evil, but you can experience pleasure doing things that God calls unpleasant. And if you walk the road apart from God, this road of life, Solomon tells us that your whole life apart from God will end up being exposed as a meaningless waste, really heavy words, not for the faint of heart or the thinned skinned. He also reminds us that the pursuit of pleasure and happiness is not wrong. In fact, in chapter 2, where we'll be today in verse 26, 
the chapter we're looking at here, Solomon writes that for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, pleasure, happiness. So God here ultimately is the creator of good because God is good. He has given us all good things. That's the main idea really of our text this morning. But what Solomon is saying is there is a way to pursue these good things with God and there is a way of pursuing these things apart from God. And like a scientist, he experiments with everything to test whether he can find an answer to his question. Is there anything in this world that can satisfy the heart of a human being? In chapter 1, he chased after intellectualism, only to discover that knowledge increases frustration and sorrow. And so it didn't bring the meaning, purpose, and satisfaction he was looking for. It didn't answer the question. He didn't find satisfaction permanently through that journey of wisdom. So now he says, if nothing I do or know really matters under the sun apart from God, living out this secular lifestyle, then I might as well just light it up and live it up. Live loud. Do what I want. Enjoy it. So he turns next in chapter 2 to pleasure, to secular hedonism. And he says again in verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? So Solomon knew what it meant to be tested. In fact, the Hebrew word used in verse 1 here is also used in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 1, when the queen of Sheba visits him. And it says, the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. She came to test him with hard questions. So just like the queen traveled to Solomon to find out what he was really like, to observe him, to listen to him, to ask questions of him, Solomon is basically saying, that's what I'm doing with all these pursuits of pleasure that men and women have been doing for hundreds and thousands of years. He's going to pursue them and ask questions of them, spend time with them, observe them. Solomon will go to find the things people say bring pleasure, spend time with them, and see if they answer these questions. And so what he discovers in these first 11 verses that we'll look at here this morning is he finds a house. And within this house, there's basically nine rooms, nine places people go to find pleasure and happiness in life. There's no more, there's no less. You can spend a lifetime in this house. You can go from room to room, you can hang out in one, stay there a while, go to another, then go back, that's often what we do. You can run around through this house looking for pleasure, and he's going to talk about each of these in these verses. And since the dawn of time, we've been scrounging through this house like a scavenger hunt, trying to find something That will satisfy. So the first room that he walks into is verse 2. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? So he walks into a comedy club. Charlie Chaplin said a day without laughter is a day wasted. My son, recently on vacation, sat down in the midst, I, I shared this with you last time I preached that we spent some time in Colorado, and we're surrounded by just stunning creation, stunning creation. And what would he rather do? He would rather sit down with his buddies and watch Jimmy Donaldson on YouTube. Jimmy Donaldson, you better know him as Mr. Beast. 
And Mr. Beast, anybody know who he is? I saw all the people under 18. All of a sudden, they're like, oh, he's speaking my language. He understands something. So Mr. Beast just does these little clips and these funny little things, and he'll sit there for hours watching this, and you'll be in the next room over, and they'll just laugh and laugh and laugh just hours at a time. My daughter, she's finally hit that phase of life, a 15-year-old, where you haven't finished a sentence unless you've giggled at the end. And I've always heard about this, but now that I'm finally experiencing it, it's, it, it I really do think that sometimes teenage girls are, are kind of insane. And so she'll, she's there with her friend, and it's like they'll say a normal sentence, but you can't put a period. You just have to giggle, and that means your sentence is over, and it's time for them to talk. And so then they'll talk, and it's not time for you to talk until they've giggled, because that means their sentence is over, and now it's your turn again. And it, it just... It just goes back and forth endlessly, and, and while this is all going on, I was sitting in the car listening to this behind me, and I'm just like, these, these kids are crazy. It's just madness. I don't even know what they're laughing at. Like, I, I don't understand even what's happening. It's, it's madness. That's what he says even here. It's, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? It, it? The point is that watching YouTube clips and, you know, if you're part of my generation, quoting Tommy Boy or Dumb and Dumber with your buddies... It doesn't typically like inspire deep contemplation of life. I've never seen somebody come out of Tommy Boy and just be like, you know, I really ought to consider more deeply today the significance and purpose of my life. Those things just don't happen. Why? Well, because laughter, it's, it's a good thing, but it's often an escape. Sometimes laughter is an excuse. Sometimes laughter is deception. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon says that sometimes laughter is just a cover for heartache and pain. One pastor said, laughter can momentarily distract us from real pain, but it cannot overcome it. And so the distraction eventually dulls away and we're left with what is reality in a broken world under the sun. It's short-lived, and so he says it's vanity, it's hevel, it's meaningless, it's of no use, it hasn't answered the question. So he leaves the comedy club and he walks into the bar to explore whether alcohol will give him a satisfying answer. Look at verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Alcohol has been a hot button issue in Christian conversations for hundreds of years. But let's be honest about what the Bible says as a whole, and especially within the book of Ecclesiastes, alcohol can be a pleasurable thing when it is used as God intended. In chapter 9, verse 7, he writes, Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. In chapter 10, verse 19, he writes, Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life. The Bible also makes it very clear when alcohol is used and abused against God's design, it results in horrible, horrible evils. The Bible condemns drunkenness. We all should know, if we don't already, through experience, through our families, through our relationships, that alcohol is a killer. It can absolutely be a killer. It destroys mind, body, spirit relationships when used outside the design of God. 
So when Solomon says he tested wine with his heart, still guiding him with wisdom, that's a unique phrase, that's an unusual phrase. Some commentators would say that that means he never got drunk. He was like a fine wine connoisseur. He'd just swirl it around in the grass, uh, glass and smell it and know how to pair it with foods, and he was just testing it. And so they said he was practicing this, but with wisdom. But then some commentators take the next phrase that says he laid hold on folly to mean that he did get drunk. I tend to think these phrases mean that he did both. He used wisdom and used folly. And in both cases, the point is still the same. The pleasure is short-lived. It's vanity. It's hevel. And when the bottle is empty, he realizes so too is his life. It didn't answer. It didn't satisfy. It didn't provide. It's a quick fix. So look at verses four through six. So he moves on. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So he goes into the art gallery and then into the nature preserves. Uh, another couple rooms that we find within this house. He invested 20 years of his life building the temple of God and his own house. And when he put all these things together, he envisioned it. He laid it out. He carved it out with others. There's precious metals surrounding him and paintings and wood carvings and the finest materials and private pools and the landscaping was beautifully done. And every single thing, inside and out, was done to the measure as close as he could get it to perfection. Maybe this will satisfy Maybe this will bring me what I need if I can live in this kind of space and experience this kind of beauty. My mind goes to one other place as a comparison. It's the only place I can really think of as a comparison. When I think about what the glories of Solomon's temple and home and gardens must have been like, I equate it perhaps with uh, the Palace of Versailles near Paris. Maybe you've visited there before, seen pictures. Some say it would cost, I mean, there's crazy estimates from $2 billion to $300 billion, but who really cares how much it would actually cost today? But when you walk through it, the extravagance and self-idolatry of King Louis XIV of France, it's honestly, it's hard to even imagine or understand how vastly obnoxious the whole place was. And you go there, and, and he called himself, uh, King Louis, that is, the Sun King. And the way he set it up was that his gates into the palace were golden, and his bedroom was the center, and the first thing that is, you looked up upon the castle, you would see. And so what happened is he put his bedroom in such a place so that when the sun rose in the morning and glistened off of those gates and shone right into that bedroom, the people would look up and see him and the sun and say, you are God. He actually built a royal chapel within that palace. But while the priests were doing their liturgies down below on the floor level, he was sitting above them looking down on the altar of God, saying, I am God. Now, Solomon might not have been so idolatrous, but he wasn't too far behind. Some say he was trying to create in this passage here with his home a new Garden of Eden. 
And if you look at the language, you can understand where that comes from. It says that all kinds of fruit trees, it could be translated every kind of fruit tree, every kind of fruit tree in the garden. Does that sound familiar? That's what's said three exact times in the creation account of the Garden of Eden. And so here he is trying to recreate the Garden of Eden. And the Genesis story uses the same thing. And and Solomon wanted paradise, but you can't recapture the perfection of paradise when you have to wake up every day with the real problems of a fallen world. You can get away to an all-inclusive. You can pretend... But Solomon says, when you chase this without God in it, it all ends up being another short-lived distraction. It also is hevel, vanity. Verse 7, so I bought male and female slaves, considered property, and had slaves who were born in my house. I, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So, so how about the treasure room? He walks in there, full of money, full of possessions. How about we walk into the music hall? How about the bedroom? None of it could rescue the world. None of it could satisfy his soul. None of it lasted for more than a fleeting moment. So he moves into the last two rooms, a selfie room, the room of affirmation, and the office, a room of work. Verse 9, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The preacher says you can have your own butlers, maids, chefs, stylists, musicians. You can choose who you want to sleep with and who you don't. You can get your own organic chicken and grass-fed steak. You can have fame and power and military protection. He had the most success. He had the best houses. He had the best parties. He had the most possessions, the richest lifestyle, endless entertainment. And he says, behold... Listen, the preacher says, pay attention, all of it, all of it, everything here amounted to nothing. It was fun for a quick minute, he found pleasure for a second, then the fun turned into frustration, and he's left with no answers to his question, to our question, except another question. Why is pleasure so short-lived? Why is pleasure so short-lived? Now, you might be thinking, it it seems worth it to me. (laughs) I mean, that life, that way, 
That way of secular hedonism, maybe, maybe it sounds like, yeah, it's, it's rough, that's against the word of God, this is not the way we ought to live, and, 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 but, but I can tell you there's something in me that wants it. I'll do better than he did. I'll still follow God if I attain all these things. I'll still be obedient to him if I can just get a little bit more and a little bit more and buy into a, a little bit more thinking that says if I get those things, then I'll be satisfied. So round and round we go on the hamster wheel running and running after what ends up being hevel, nothing, a big fat zero. It's like we're on that wheel and we just run around. It says, that's nothing. It was fleeting. Don't do it again. We run around again seeing if we'll get a different result and a different result. It's the same message. Every time we pass go, it's the same thing over and over again. Maybe you've heard this before. If you're not hungry for God, you're probably full of yourself. If you're not hungry for God, you're probably full of yourself. See, the issue is, I think the issue with our broken hearts is that we don't trust the words of Solomon the preacher. We don't trust his testimony. We don't trust the words that he's saying here. And we don't trust the words of Isaiah the prophet either. When he quotes God's universal invitation, Isaiah 55 verse 1, Come, God says, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and he who has no money, don't worry about that. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is what he offers. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Do we listen to the words of Solomon? Do we listen to the words of Isaiah the prophet? I'm not sure we do, or maybe we don't even trust the words of Jesus, the Savior. There's so many we could choose from. When he spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, what is this water? It's this Secular hedonism. It's all these things that we think will bring us satisfaction and pleasure. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Pleasure is short-lived. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So is there a thing in the world that can truly satisfy the heart of a human being? No. The answer is not of this world because this world, the way it is right now, is broken and mangled. It was never meant to be our permanent home. Our uh, heavenly home is really meant to be our permanent home. Life in Christ, this water that he gives, that's what's meant to bring us sustenance and sustainability and ultimately what's meant to satisfy. And Jesus said himself in John 14, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Get out of that house. Stop living for the world. I'm preparing for you a better house. Live as though you're gonna be in it one day. That's the life we are to pursue. And so here's the biblical answer to secular hedonism as we close up this morning. The answer is God is a well that never runs dry. 
One of my favorite sermons of all time was called The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. Listen to what he said. He said, it would seem odd. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Or what he wrote in Mere Christianity, if I find myself, if I, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Some of you think that you can experience pleasure without persevering in your faith. It's deception. It's deception. It's short-lived. It's smoke and mirrors. The Christian story tells us that pleasure and perseverance must be joined together for pleasure to be lasting. Some of you think that you can be happy and that God wants you to be happy without being holy. It's short-lived. It's smoke and mirrors. The Christian story tells us that happiness and holiness must be joined together in order for that happiness to be long-lasting. Don't put the weight of your soul on someone else. Don't put the weight of your soul on something else because they're not strong enough to carry it. All you'll end up with is frustration and disappointment because you'll see their brokenness as well. You know, a few other days in my life ended up being better than those days when I got those video games. (laughs) At the top of the list, not even close, is the day I gave my life to Jesus Christ when I was 10 years old. Behind that is when I was 17 and chose to follow his commandment in baptism. Sure, it were days, there were days when my children were born, they'd make the list. I have to say that my wedding day beats out getting a Sega too. My wife is a gift, no doubt about it. If you know Katie, then you are better for it. She's a gift. And she gave me a piece of wisdom early in our marriage. I won't forget it. It didn't take her long to realize that we've got issues, and so I, I, did a, I did a trick a little bit, and that was I started dating her in September, and I proposed in January, four months later, before she could really get to know me. <laughs> but she said yes. We got married a year from our first date. And she realized after we started a married life together, we didn't have all the numbers then. I guess we have them now. I don't really get it all. But, you know, she learned that I wasn't exactly who she thought I was. She's a nine on the Enneagram. I'm a one. I don't really know what that means other than it means I have to have everything perfect most of the time. And the problem with ones is whenever, at least in my case, like whenever you physically have something in your body that starts breaking down, I'm convinced like I only have days left to live at that point. (laughs) It's just the way I'm wired. And so she started to realize my personality type and she knew she couldn't put all of her hopes on me. I'm not big enough to carry that. I'm not strong enough to carry that weight. Nor would it have even been fair for her to do so. 
And she said something that sounds harsh, but it was actually loving and true. She said, the Lord helped me see that you, she, she looked right in my eyes, I was 24 years old, and she said, the Lord helped me see that you will never satisfy me. Only he can do that. She was 22. That's wisdom. It's truth. And yet so many of us are still trying to chase after putting all that weight on somebody else. Something else. Will this satisfy? Will this satisfy? Will this satisfy? Will this bring pleasure? Will this bring happiness? This is what will do it. Finally, when all the while Jesus is there saying, here, drink from this well. It's free. It's open to you. It's available to you. And so my prayer for us this morning, friends, is that we would come to Christ, to the deeper thing, and we would see that in him alone is satisfaction. A.W. Tozer said most Christians, and this is true, are satisfied living as common Christians without an insatiable hunger for the deeper things of God. My prayer today is that we would experience the deeper things of God he is our fortress. He is our rock. He is our salvation. He's the only one that we can build a life upon and find what we're looking for. So he invites you to do just that. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father God, thank you. Thank you that we could build our life upon the rock of Jesus Christ. There's no greater love, there's no greater purpose that is given, there is no other name under heaven by which we are saved. There's no other place to find meaning, there's no other place to find joy, there's no other place to find lasting happiness. Only in Jesus Christ will we be filled. So Father, I pray for every soul that is here that has not submitted their lives to Jesus, even in these moments, they will say, I'm gonna lay aside every idol and I'm putting my faith alone in him. He alone is good. He alone is worthy. He alone can carry the weight of my soul. And for all of us who have, Father, who all of us have claimed that faith in Christ, I pray that we would lay aside every idol that has taken hold, that we would get off the hamster wheel, that we would pursue things that satisfied, that we will build our lives upon the rock of Jesus Christ and leave this place motivated by your gospel to make a difference in this world for him. So Father, hear the prayers of your people, hear the praise of your people, and help us to respond today with joy and with happiness coming from you in no other place. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash contact to introduce yourself today.